Let's pray. Heavenly Father, Lord, we love you. We worship you. We praise you. We trust you. We thank you. God, as Josh prayed, I reiterate his request that it's only you. That it's only you who speaks through me. That it's only you who has preeminence in this place. Father, you have given a word that will not be stopped. What is even attempting to stop it will not stop it. Not today. Not any day. Father, we worship you. Give strength to your warriors. Give strength to Deborah. Your will be done, Father. In Jesus' name, amen. Deborah, look at me. Lift your head and look at me. Look at me. It's okay. Just look. Just look. Deborah, it's okay. It's okay. He has no victory. None. Not today. Not any day. I release a protection over Deborah in Jesus' name. That nothing be stopped today that you have given me to say, Father. Nothing. It was interesting. This morning, yeah, as I never know what he's going to have me talk about until I come up. But I was talking to him this morning, and he was talking to me about battle strategy. I thought, okay, that's kind of cool. I'd like to know some battle strategy. And what sat so heavy in my spirit, And the reason it sat so heavy in my spirit was because of the times in which we live. We live in times that need battle strategy. We live in times where the bride is not unified. Where Satan for decades and centuries has had his will to move against the bride. He doesn't care about those who are not part of the bride. They're not a threat to him. The sad part is most of the bride is not a threat to him either. But that is changing. It has been changing. That's why he's scared. 
If you don't know that Satan is afraid, then you don't understand truly what's going on and what's coming. Because he is. So we live in just strange times. We live in times that half the bride is thinking we're going into the tribulation. The other half doesn't know what the tribulation is. The sad part is both are wrong. And just in form of review here for a second, things may look like we're going into the tribulation. Things may look really similar to what is explained in Revelation chapter 4 on. Wow, that looks really similar. You know, does that mean taking this, this uh, what is it, the shot we get? Vaccine, thank you. Does it mean taking the vaccine is is accepting the mark of the beast? No. Doesn't mean you should do it. But it's not the mark of the beast. The times in which we are in is a foreshadowing of what is coming. That's why it looks similar. That's what you have to understand because there is a grand mystery that we've talked about before. A grand mystery that is being unfolded even right now. That literally culminates in Revelation, I want to say it's chapter 11 or 12, in the, in the seventh trumpet, it culminates. It comes to a conclusion, the writer said, John said. This mystery is the church. This mystery is the bride. This mystery is what will literally bring a jealousy to Israel because of what God wants to do with them. That's Romans 11.11. That what he does with the bride will be a jealousy to Israel because Israel are God's chosen people. And God is not finished with Israel. Praise God he's not. Guess what? His promises are yes and amen. His promises stand. His promises do not just go away because, well, I'm going to start something else now. This thing called the church, this thing called the bride, that does not replace his promises for Israel. But because Israel has not listened... I mean, literally, for 2,000 years, Israel has not listened. So because of that, he, he came up with this grand master plan of his children. His children by adoption. Showing through them what he wants to do with his direct descendants. <laughs> right? That's Romans 11.11. That's what's coming. That's why it looks similar. That's why what we're going into and some of the things that we deal with, look, wow, that's just like end time stuff. Yes, it is end time stuff. But the focus is not on Israel like it will be in the tribulation. God will judge the world on behalf of Israel in the tribulation. That's not what's going on right now. God is judging his bride because judgment comes to the house of God first. 
He is judging his bride because his bride does not have ears to hear, does not have eyes to see. He said in the letters, the seven letters to the churches, each time he said, have ears to hear, have eyes to see. Do we have those? Because if we do, we'll understand the times that we're in. And in those times, God has prearranged a battle plan, a battle strategy. Right? Strategies are good. The Bible said that you count the cost before you go into a battle. It also said you count the cost before you build a building, right? So you don't get it halfway done and then it just doesn't work. Can you not, am I rubbing? I know it rubs against my beard. Is that better? Yeah. It's weird. I can't, yeah, I'll just put a little strip right there. <laughs> That'll look cool. But, see, now I forgot where I was. No, 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 that's good. Holy Spirit, right? Now, when God told us in the seven letters to have ears to hear and eyes to see, it was for the battle strategy that he's putting forward. It was to understand that we do not have to be victims in this battle. In fact, we can be victorious. It doesn't even matter how much of the bride has ears to hear or eyes to see, because it doesn't take much. In fact, in the Word of God, oftentimes it started with one. But what came through the unity of a group was a victory so sound, so huge. And we can expect that today. We can have that today. And that's what he is doing. So he takes me through this, and I, okay, Lord, I can't wait. Can't wait to hear your battle strategy. You know, I'm, I'm, a, I'm a warrior kind of guy. I played football. I, I sparred in, well, nowadays they call it mixed martial arts. Back then we just called it messing around, I guess. <laughs> so I, I like to fight, so awesome. Give, give us this strategy. Give us this strategy to tell who is the enemy and give me a weapon. Let me go after the enemy. And he said, okay. And I'm being a little facetious here. But he said, okay, let me take you to the first one. And he said, let's look at David. 1 Samuel 17. 1 Samuel 17, and we're going to read verses 38 to 40. And how David was so well equipped for this battle. And you guys know the story about David and Goliath. You know David was a small guy. Goliath was a big guy. Right? On a football field, that would have been very unfair. On a battlefield, it seemed to work out pretty well for David. Verse 38. Then Saul, this was after David had already said what he was going to do, and it was accepted. He was... In in Saul's eyes, he's the only one stupid enough and willing to go do it. So fine, let the kid go do it. Verse 38. Then Saul clothed David, David with his armor. He put a helmet of bronze on his head and clothed him with a coat of mail. And David strapped his sword over his armor. And he tried in vain to go, for he had not tested them. Boy, isn't that a picture of how we do warfare all the time. Well, I I think my warfare requires this, that I can control and I can work with, 
Because that's what the church says. Right? That's what the church says you go to war with. So I'm comfortable. You know, that's what I'll do. Well, David, who was not comfortable with that because he had come from a life growing up of just trusting God. Just trusting him. Nothing else. Fighting things that normal guys or girls his side, they wouldn't fight. A bear and a lion. And maybe it was a little bear. Maybe it was a little lion. Right? I don't think so. I don't think so. David was already prepared, and, and then Saul's giving him all this stuff, and he's putting it on, and he's trying. I mean, got to give him that. He tried, right? Then David said to Saul, I cannot go with these, for I have not tested them. In other words, I have not gone with these because I'm going to die. I don't know how to use this stuff. I can barely move in this stuff. I am going to die if I go out there with this stuff. So David took him off. Verse 40. Then he took his staff in his hand and he chose five smooth stones from the brook and put them in his shepherd's pouch. His sling was in his hand and he approached the Philistine. I'm sorry, to a normal person? It's like, you know what? Get the kid out of there or just let him go because we're going to have to figure out a different strategy. Right? That doesn't make sense. And I'm asking the Lord this morning when he shows me this, I said, okay, Lord, what does that mean? Are we supposed to throw rocks? What does that mean? No, he said, go with no fear. Go with no fear. It doesn't matter what you have to deal with. It doesn't matter the battlefield. If I have called you to the battlefield, you step on with no fear. Why? Because fear is a spirit. Now, by the way, that doesn't mean you don't feel fear. That, that's a misnomer. Feeling fear and giving in to fear are two very different things. You can feel fear. When you're stepping into an arena or you're stepping onto a, 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 a football field or something like that, there is anxiety that comes at least for me, and I've shared it with you before, until that first hit. That first hit, then, okay, anxiety's gone. Now you just got to figure out how to absorb the next hit. Right? So you may feel fear, but you don't take on the fear. I'm sure, I'm sure that David felt something going on to that battlefield. He didn't just lackadaisically walk onto the battlefield just knowing, hey, I, you know, Lord gave him into my hands, I'm going to kill him. No. If that were the case, he wouldn't have tried on Saul's armor. He would have told Saul right from the beginning, I don't need that, don't worry about it, he's mine, don't worry about it. David felt fear, trust me. When you walk up against a person where his sword is over 100 pounds, and, and I would dare say David probably wasn't much more than that. You know, you're going to feel fear. David didn't give in to the fear because he knew what his father said to him. He knew what was going to happen. So the Lord said, your first piece of the battle plan is no fear. Do not give in to fear. When you have this strategy, it is not giving in to fear. 
So he said, let's go to the next one. And I'm thinking, awesome, okay, the next one, I get to I get the meat and the bones. You know, come on, I get to see how I swing a sword. How I get to finally go after it. He said, let's go to Joshua chapter 1, or Joshua chapter 6. And if you guys know where I'm going, you know the irony of it. Joshua chapter 6. Oops. This is what happens when I shake. We all know the the situation here. Joshua had brought Israel over the River Jordan. They're, They're about to go into the land, right? They're about to conquer their first city, which is Jericho, a heavily fortified city. And so now God is going to lay out the battle plans for it. You know, I need you to build this big ram that's going to be so big it's going to knock down the wall. Not quite what happened, was it? Verse 1 of chapter 6. Now Jericho was shut up inside and outside because of the people of Israel. In other words, it was under siege. None went out. None came in, and the Lord said to Joshua, See, I have given Jericho into your hand with its king and mighty men of valor. Now here's my strategy for it. You shall march around the city, all the men of war going around the city once. Thus shall you do for six days. Seven priests shall bear seven trumpets of ram's horns before the ark. On the seventh day you shall march around the city seven times. And the priests shall blow the trumpets. And when they make a long blast with the ram's horn, when you hear, when you, sorry, when you hear the sound of the trumpet, then all the people shall shout with a great shout. And the wall of the city will fall flat. Fall down flat. And the people shall go up everyone straight before him. Okay. Imagine if Joshua was not a man of faith. Imagine hearing that and being expected as a warrior, as a physical fighter, to think that that was sane. But yet that's exactly what God did. In fact, God said, put the priests and the worshipers up front. Put the musicians up front. Lead them around. And so when God is showing me this, I'm asking him, what piece of this is our part of the strategy? See, today we don't deal with cities with great walls like that. In fact, here in America, it's even different than over in Africa. Africa, it's it's a lot more in your face, if you will. Here, it's hidden. The demonic is hidden here in America to where people don't see it. But I'm I'm telling you, it is heavier here than it is over in Africa. It's heavier here. The deception also is heavier here, although that is being broken. So so I'm asking the Lord, okay, part of the strategy, what do you want us to, to know here? And he said, the focus of your strategy, of your warfare, has to be your worship. That was the focus of them walking around. They were led around by the priests, by the worshipers. 
The focus of your strategy has to be worship Him. Let me add something there that you hear every week from me. What does that mean to worship Him? It's relationship with Him. It's not just pulling out the book and singing a song or a hymnal or whatever. That's not real worship. It might be real singing, but it's not real worship. Real worship is the connection that comes in building a personal relationship through Jesus Christ with the Father. That worship is intimate. But when that intimate worship is then put with other intimate worship, it becomes corporate. It becomes unified. It becomes a power that Satan doesn't know how to deal with. He doesn't. So he said, the worship has to be in the forefront of your battle strategy. So then he took me to the next one. Judges chapter 7. You guys know this story. Judges chapter 7. This is the story of Gideon. You all know this story. We're going to begin with verse 2. But again, you know the story. Gideon lays out, and the, the part leading up to this, Gideon is being called, and, and he's not sure he's being called, so he lays a fleece out, and, and okay, kind of believes it, but can I do it again? Lays a fleece out again, and... He finally comes to the point where he agrees and understands he is being called. So now the Lord is going to lay out his battle strategy for him, right? There were 32, I think it was 32,000 Israel, uh, Israelites there. So let's start in verse 2. And, and by the way, they were up against a huge army, a huge, huge army. Much, much, four or five, four, almost five times bigger than their entire nation. Okay? Lord said to Gideon, the people with you are too many for me to give the Midianites into their hand. Lest Israel boast over me, saying my own hand has saved me. Boy, I love that. I love that. Right away, the immediate thing that God said is, I will not give. If I, am, if I am intervening here, I will not give my glory to anyone. He is not going to give his glory in what is happening now to anyone except him. Now, therefore, proclaim in the ears of the people, saying, Whoever is fearful and trembling, let him return home and hurry away from Mount Gilead. In other words, if you're too afraid to come in here, you're going to do more harm than good. So, so just go to your home. Go to your home, pray, you know, stay safe. 22,000 of the people returned. I'm sure that was disheartening. <laughs> I'm sure that he's like, seriously? Wow. That's, that's like most of them, Lord. Come on. 10,000 remain, verse 4. And the Lord said to Gideon, people are still too many. He said, still too many. Guys, there's, there's way too many. Take them down to the water, 
I will test them for you there. And anyone of whom I say to you, this one shall go with you, shall go with you. And anyone of whom I say to you, this one shall not go with you, shall not go. You can just imagine how Gideon Gideon was feeling through this whole thing. I'm I'm sure he's looking at each one as they come and they drink the water. He's going, come on, come on, come on. Oh, another one down. Verse 5, so he brought the people down to the water. And the Lord said to Gideon, everyone who laps the water with his tongue as a dog laps, you shall set by himself. Likewise, everyone who kneels down to drink. And the number of those who lapped, putting their hands to their mouths, was 300 men. But all the rest of the people knelt down to drink water. And the Lord said to Gideon, with the 300 men who lapped, I will save you and give the Midianites into your hand. Let all the others go, every man to his home. (laughs) Okay. How would you react if you were Gideon? In that, Lord, hold on. This isn't a battle strategy. This is a suicide strategy. I mean, he probably thought it was suicide with all 32,000. So you you could just imagine where his thought process is here. Verse 8, so that, and I, I want to go through this, this story here, because it's so powerful. So the people took provision into their hand and their trumpets, and he sent all the rest of Israel, every man to his tent, but retained the 300 men, and the camp of Midian was below him in the valley. That same night the Lord said to him, Arise, go down against the camp, for I have given it into your hand. But if you are afraid to go down, go down to the camp with Pura, your servant. And you shall hear what they say. And afterward, your hand shall be strengthened to go against the camp. See, the Lord knew that he was missing the first step. He was missing the first piece of strategy, which is fear. See, there's a, there, there is fear, but he was giving in to fear. He said, he said so if, if you're afraid, it's okay. Here, I'm going to prove this to you. I'm going to show you that this is me. I'm going to give you a confirmation that I am behind this. That these 300 and you will not be lost, but will literally bring the victory that I give. So go down and, and, and I'll give you this confirmation. Then he went down with Perah, his, his servant, to the outposts of the armed men who were in the camp, which I, I find extraordinary. I mean, that had to take courage. I mean, you had to be a little bit dealing with fear to even go into the camp as a spy, right? Would any, would any of you do that without feeling a little bit of anxiety? Go down, I, th- I think there were 126,000 or something like that Midianites going into their camp where it says they're like locusts all over and you're there spying on them. You know, praying that I don't get caught, but trusting the Lord. Do you see, do you see the steps the Lord took him through to make full his trust? And the Midianites and the Amalekites and all the people of the east lay along the valley like locusts in abundance. And their camels were without number. And the stand that is on the seashore in abundance, or sand, sorry. When Gideon came, behold, a man was telling a dream to his comrade. And he said, behold, by the way, that, never 
mind. I was going to tell a stupid joke. Never mind. <laughs> that would just prove that I, I am well beyond being able to tell jokes. Verse 13, when Gideon came, behold, a man was telling him a dream to his comrade, and he said, behold, I dreamed a dream. And behold, a cake of barley bread tumbled into the camp of Midian and came to a tent and struck it, so it fell and turned upside down, so that the tent lay flat. And his comrade answered, this is no other than the sword of Gideon, the son of Joash, a man of Israel. God has given into his hand Midian and all the camp. Okay, you can glean a few things there. First, glean the fact that Gideon just got his confirmation. And and you'll see that he takes it that way and moves on. He got his confirmation, but imagine what's really going on there. Now, unless the guy didn't tell all his dream, if it wasn't recorded in the word of God, and there's so much more to the dream that wasn't recorded here, I don't know how he got an interpretation of that. Really, I don't, except God. See, God is the only one that could do that. This shows that God is already fighting on the other side. He's already preparing the enemy for loss. He's already working to where that victory, when it comes, it will come immediately. Because he's already started the battle. They already know it in their minds. They already knew it was coming. Verse 15, as soon as Gideon heard the telling of the dream and its interpretation, he worshipped. And he returned to the camp of Israel and said, Arise, for the Lord has given the host of Midian into your hand. And he divided the 300 men into three companies and put trumpets into the hands of all of them in empty jars with torches inside the jars. And he said to them, look at me and do likewise. When I come to the outskirts of the camp, do as I do. When I blow the trumpet, I and all who are with me then blow the trumpets also on every side of the camp and shout to the Lord and for Gideon. See, I don't, I don't see any human strategy there either. Okay, we're, we're going we're gonna to get up on the ridge surrounding this camp, and we're going to each have a thousand arrows and just start shooting them. God will direct them. Is that what he said? No. In fact, God didn't even give them weapons. God gave them a trumpet. I don't know, I suppose you could beat somebody to death with a trumpet, but certainly not 126,000 people. And then he gave them this jar and this torch. But see, Gideon already knew that God's strategy was sound because God proved it to him. He proved it to him literally from the enemy that he was going to conquer. So he did. And, and we, we won't, you can read on later, but, but basically they get up there and, and they blow the trumpet and they break the, the jar so the light just shines everywhere. And the reaction to that was extraordinary. The Midians in the camp are thinking that they're being hit hard. So they kill each other. Does that make sense to anybody in here? doesn't make sense to me. Right? I, I would think if I'm sitting there and I'm hearing people dying, 
I'm thinking, okay, but the guy sitting across from the fire from me isn't trying to kill me. But something made them think that. Something made them think that, and they literally fought each other and killed each other. There was only a remnant left that took off, and then Gideon was told, get everybody, go after them. Take care of them. That's what he did. So this strategy didn't make sense in the human realm. So God, what is this that we're supposed to glean from this? He said so clearly to me that in what you do, your relationship with him, it's got to shine brightly. You can't hide that. You can't hide who you are. If you hide who you are, God cannot use you. He can't. Even more than that, He cannot unite you with the rest of His bride. You could just be cattle that kind of move from point A to point B. That's it. Doesn't mean you're not saved. Doesn't mean you don't have that golden ticket to heaven. We've talked about that many times. It's got nothing to do with that. But when you have relationship with Jesus Christ, there is nothing, nothing that will keep you from letting it shine. Letting it out there. Letting it be known. Why? Because that scares the enemy. Yes, it's a testimony. Do you understand that it's not just about testimony's sake? That you have to open your mouth when you go out and you see somebody, you're filling up gas tank at Wawa and you're seeing somebody there and, and you have an opportunity to talk to them about Jesus and that's a great testimony. Yes, that's a great purpose. That's not what this is about. That's not part of the battle strategy. The, the point of the battle strategy is that you're showing it to the enemy. You're showing who you are, who you choose outwardly to the enemy. That you will not cower with other people looking on. Oh, how often are we embarrassed by proclaiming Jesus? And I know, I know ignition is very different when it comes to that. But as the bride... You know, it's sad to me when I meet people in the bride that it's not clear they're in the bride. It's like, oh, oh, you're a Christian. Awesome. And praise God for that. But here's the thing. Let it shine because the enemy sees that and it scares him. How do you think God got the Midianites, to kill themselves and each other. Little voices whispered in their ears. Right? It was the influence of the power of the Holy Spirit that literally made them turn on each other. Is it any different today? Is it any different when we face a spirit?
spirit enemy that sees what we do, that sees the power in which we walk. But do you understand it's not the power in which you walk. It's not the power that you're given when you become a child of God, which we are all given as his children. The difference is when you know it. The difference is when you walk in it. You can have somebody that, that believes that they are a child of the king and you'd never know it because deep down inside they're not sure. Or they're afraid. Or they're embarrassed. Well, maybe the circles that they, that they work with or, or, or that they hang around with would really give them a hard time if they knew that they were a Jesus freak. In love with him. But do you see it works just the opposite? Those voices can't be louder in your ears. Because God will silence the enemy. This morning was a perfect example of that. That wasn't silenced by me. That was silenced by God. Simply because he has a purpose. He has a purpose here. He has something he needs us to know. He needs us unified. He needs us understanding that we have a battle plan before us that we have to walk out. So we have to let our light shine. We have to let the enemy see who we are. Then he took me one final place, and that's Acts chapter 12. And you guys know this story too. This is when Peter was in prison. And I'm just going to read the, the whole story of what was going on here. Peter's in prison, and, and you know, this is after the church had begun, this is after Pentecost and all that, and, and there had been threats against them, you know, being arrested and all that, and they said, well, no, we're not going to stop preaching, and he was arrested. And verse 5 says, so Peter was kept in prison, but earnest prayer for him was made by God or made to God by the church. Now, when Herod was about to bring him out on that very night, Peter was sleeping between two soldiers bound with two chains and sentries before the door were guarding the prison. Behold, an angel of the Lord stood next to him and a light shone in the cell. He struck Peter on the side and woke him saying, get up quickly. And the chains fell off of his hands. And the angel said to him, dress yourself and put on your sandals. And he did so. He said to him, wrap your cloak around you and follow me. And he went out and followed him. He did not know what was being done by the angel was real. I love that. I love that. But thought he was seeing a vision. He's probably thinking... Oh, thank you, Lord, for this respite, since I have to be stuck here. Thank you. Verse 10. When they had passed the first and the second guard, they came to the iron gate leading into the city. It opened for them of its own accord, and they went out and went along one street. And immediately the angel left him. (laughs) 
When Peter came to himself, he said, Now I am sure that the Lord has sent his angel and rescued me from the hand of Herod and from all that Jewish people were expecting. This is where I wish the word of God would, would in, in our day and age, give a, a, a little bit more glimpse into the emotion of the moment. Because I'm, I'm sure it wasn't, you know, him just saying, Now I am sure that the Lord has sent his angel. No, I'm thinking he's on his face and he goes, That was so cool! I'm sure. I'm sure of it. Because God had done an amazing, amazing thing. I mean, it would have been amazing enough just to put the guards to sleep so Peter could have some peace. Maybe take the chains off or loosen them up a little bit. Maybe put a a nice pot roast right in front of him. I mean, he could have done that. No, he did the whole thing. He walked him out. and, And isn't it amazing how Peter had no idea it was real? Do you understand that, and we talk about this all the time, the real reality is the spirit world. That's the real reality. We are in a limited reality. Right? We're in three dimensions in time. The spirit world is outside of that. And so, just imagine what he was thinking. He's out there, oh, this is awesome. I Man, I don't know how I would have reacted. I kind of think I would have wanted to go back and just, I don't know. Just check. <laughs> uh, that, that probably would have been the wrong spirit leading me there. But, <laughs> but yeah. So the story goes on, and I love this. Uh, let's see. Yeah, verse 12. When he realized this, he went to the house of Mary, the mother of John, whose other name was Mark, where many were gathered together and were praying. These were gathered in unity and praying fervently. They were the ones that were referred to in the first verse that we that we read, verse 5. And when he knocked at the door of the gateway, a servant girl named Rhoda came to an aunt came to answer. Recognizing Peter's voice in her joy, she did not open the gate, but ran in and reported that Peter was standing at the gate. (laughs) Peter's probably thinking, yeah, maybe I should have gone somewhere else by now. Verse 15. They said to her, you are out of your mind. But she kept insisting that it was so, and they kept saying, it is his angel. Which that doesn't make sense to me. Do our angels look like us? I've never heard that. So maybe they just pulled that out. I don't know. But Peter continued knocking. (laughs) He's like, this is real. (laughs) Peter continued knocking. And when they opened, they saw him and were amazed. But motioning to, to them with his hand to be silent, he described to them how the Lord had brought him out of the prison, which... I, I don't know that he would have even had to worry about being silent. I mean, if God could do that. God could certainly put a bubble around him and make him not heard. But either way, the important thing here, which blew me away, is the Lord gave the next piece of the strategy. And that is fervent prayer in unity. Fervent prayer in unity. And by the way, in praying, you know you have to believe when you pray. If you don't believe, 
then why would you receive? James tells us that. Right? So fervent prayer in unity. They were in the house praying in unity. God, save him. God, save him. Who's at the door? No, they can't bother us now. God, save him. (laughs) Now, the only thing I would say about this is do it in faith. Because, see, we got a little glimpse into their actual faith. Did they believe God could do it? Absolutely. If they didn't, they would not have been praying in unity. Isn't that just like the church today? We all know. We know that God is good. We know he is all-powerful. We know he can do anything. But do we believe he'll do it for us? Wow. Wow, what a difference. What a difference when you believe he'll do it for you. When we believe he will do it for ignition. When we believe he will do it for his remnant. Yes, he will do it. He does do it. He is doing it. He will do it. So we add faith into that mix. Into that fervent prayer. And... In this strategy that the Lord gave, he gave me so many, so many thoughts about the battle and the warfare that we're in here right now. You know, you know, the Lord has told me that that we will be in a civil war and then we'll be in a world war. I don't know timing on that. I don't even know what that means. Does that mean I am go I am to go and pick up a gun and start a civil war? No. Absolutely not. Absolutely not. When he gives us the battle strategy, the strategy is about him. It's about me connecting with him, giving him my full faith. My full desire. Everything that I am and saying I trust you, God. And I will not silence my voice. I will let my light shine. I will let my voice shine and be heard. That's one of the things that's such a problem with the bride. And and guess what? Corona brought that one out. God said, okay. I'm paraphrasing here, but okay. You want to be silent? I'll take away your voice. See how you like that. See, we're, we're to have a voice no matter what. Amen. We're not to be afraid about losing tax benefits. Who cares? If God gives the money anyways, he'll give a little bit more to pay for the tax. He did with Peter and John. He said, just go down and catch this fish and you'll get enough tax. So why are we afraid of that? Church, why are we afraid of that? See, that's not it. What we're really afraid of losing is control. Because that's what the church is all about today. It's about control. It's about controlling a narrative. Controlling their little piece of what they feel is theirs. That's why the bride's not unified. Not unified here in the United States. Not unified all over the world. But they're going to be. They're going to be because time has come for God to work his mystery through his bride. 
and this bride, this remnant is going to rise up. And they are going to come together. And they are going to recognize it is not about a leader. It is not about Donald Trump. It is not about me. It is not about any single human leader. It is about God. It is about Him. And when you have personal relationship with Him, you know that. Why? Because He tells you that. He's the one that gets everybody on the same team. Not a charismatic leader. By the way, I am not downing leaders either because he uses them. Gideon was a leader. He was called as a leader. God just made it real clear to Gideon that you will not get the glory for this. And neither will all of Israel. The glory will be mine even though I will use you. I love the story of David and his men. You know, his 600. And then he had 30 that were, that were tight with him. That it, I mean, read some of the stories of these guys. Where a single guy is killing 300 guys. It's, it's I mean, yeah, you know, mixed martial arts had nothing on that. You know, nothing. We think we're tough today. Imagine facing one of these guys. On a battlefield. So I'm not saying that there are not times where the Lord will have us fight. We just have to recognize the battlefield. The battlefield isn't even Congress. That's not the battlefield. That is stolen ground. That's what that is. There is an enemy that occupies stolen ground. That's what that is. So the battle is not there. The battle is not in an election that was stolen. The battle is not there. The battle is with the enemy that we cannot see. Because what fixes all of that? Exposure. Exposure. Transparency. Deception to be broken. Deception to even be broken over the bride. I don't don't even care about everybody else. If deception, true deception, was just broken off the bride, we'd be living in a very different country. (laughs) Almost immediately. By the way, take hope, because this is going to happen. See, God promised something to Israel. That he is going to foreshadow in his bride, and that is the culmination of the grand mystery and you know what, I, I, let's go there. It's Hebrews chapter 11. Hebrews 11. And you, you all know Hebrews 11. It's the faith chapter where, where the, the writer of Hebrews is listing all these different people of faith, these, these uh, foundations of the faith, if you will. Verse 13. These all died in faith, not having received the things promised, but having seen them and greeted them from afar, and having acknowledged that they were strangers and exiles on this earth. For people who speak thus make it clear that they are seeking a homeland. If they had been thinking of that land from which they had gone out, they would have had opportunity to return. 
In other words, if they had been there before, if they had been there once, they'd have opportunity to return. But that's not what it was. But as it is, they desire a better country. That is a heavenly one. Therefore, God is not ashamed to be called their God. For he has prepared for them a city. Now, in going on to understand this, and you see it really happen in Revelation chapter 19, we know that God is going to do that for Jerusalem. He's going to do that for Israel. But in the foreshadowing of what he does, he is going to do it with his bride. This is literally what makes Israel jealous. For instance, would would Israel be jealous if we're just disunified in a bunch of warfare and getting beat up all the time? No, that would make Romans 11.11 ineffective. Wouldn't even matter. What would make it to where they would be jealous? When we are given what they have been promised. Kind of like to show, see, see, I could do this for my children. And I'm going to. I, I still have this for you, but you've got to believe. You've got to believe. And, and in... Revelation 19, he does that, but I want to say it's chapter 12, hold on. No, chapter 15. Hold on, I will get there. It's so much faster if I wasn't shaking. End of chapter 11. And I've shared this with you before. Verse 15, Then the seventh angel blew his trumpet, and there was a loud voice in heaven saying, The kingdom of the world has become the kingdom of our our Lord and of his Christ, and he shall reign forever and ever. And the 24 elders who sit on their thrones before God fell on their faces and worshipped God, saying, We give thanks to you, Lord God Almighty, who is and who was, for you have taken your great power and begun to reign. The nations raged, but your wrath came, and the time for the dead to be judged, and the rewarding of your servants, the prophets and the saints, and those who fear your name, both small and great, and for the destroying of the destroyers of the earth. Recognize what's happening here. In Thessalonians, Thessalonians it says that when the seventh trumpet sounds, the mystery is complete. The mystery of the church. Literally, God, when that sounds, God has done in the church what he needs to do, what he desires to do to make Israel jealous. It is literally the finalization of Revelation 3, verse 9, where the world looks on the bride and sees that God loves them. It's never happened before. But it's going to. It's going to now. This is not distant future stuff. We are there now. God is showing it. He is just like he did Gideon. He is giving confirmation after confirmation after confirmation. The problem is the time in which we find ourselves is whittling down the 32,000 to the 300. It's a difficult time, but that's where we find ourselves. Those who are afraid, 
will just be said, okay, just, just stay over there. If you're afraid, you're not going to be helpful. That's okay. Just stay over there. It doesn't mean you're not part of Israel anymore. It doesn't mean you're not part of the bride anymore. Just stay over there. Because you can't take part in what God is doing. You would be a hindrance to yourself. And then going down and like they did to the water and seeing whose strategy is correct. Do you see each individual that went to drink water had a strategy to do it? They either put their face down in, in the water or they brought the water up to their mouth. What's the difference there? Well, a real warrior is going to bring it up to their mouth so they can still see what's going on. One who is more consumed with what they need just puts the face down in the, in the water and figures everybody else will take care of their back. That's what he's doing to the bride right now. He's whittling down, to the, down the bride in terms of who's going to be used. He's whittling down to the ones that would be watchful, to the ones that will not be afraid or will, will step even in spite of fear and will work together. So be excited. Be excited because that's offered to everybody that's in the bride. Everybody. Just like it was offered to all 32,000. But know that what he is doing in us, it requires our fervency. It requires us not to be afraid. It requires us to let our light shine. Our testimony it requires us to be fervent in prayer, unified in what he tells us to do. Let's come on up. Before we close in prayer, um, boy, I just kept hearing um, over and over and over, the James 2.17 verse, faith without works is dead. And one of the things that I have often been frustrated with the Lord about when I'm before him, looking at the state of, of the bride today and of the, the voice of the godly being so silenced and so secularized, is that how is it that people don't see where the real strategy is? When you look at Ephesians 6.12, we wrestle not against flesh and blood. Clearly, as Greg said, the battle isn't in some of these places. Clearly, there's a battle there. But man, if we just knew that the actual real battle is against the spirit realm with what we carry coming against hell's kingdom, understanding that connection, we would know what to do. There are things that we need to do. Faith without works, without a demonstration of our walk is dead. But guess what? Works without faith is dead. And so while there's a lot of battles to fight, both politically and in the bride and in our communities and in our schools, our education system, I mean, rampant problems to, you know, that, are, that are just rampant everywhere, we have to make sure they're in the right order. It's like a cart before a horse um, kind of a scenario when we don't recognize that we have to fight the battle in the spirit. Then, knowing that connection... It's, it's almost like a manifestation of the greatest commandment. Loving the Lord your God 
heart, mind, soul, and strength, then loving others as ourselves, in that greatest commandment are the assignments. The intimacy births what our assignment is, what works we're to go and do. But if we're all about works, we're going to end up in battles that will never be won because we weren't called to that. If we're pulling back from any kind of movement and just thinking that it's just enough to just to pray. Now, praying is it's always enough. It's always enough to pray. But I'm saying in a sense of I'm going to step back from any engagement except, except praying because God will always require you to step in the faith that you declare that you have. In some way, shape, or form, you will be required to step. Otherwise, it is dead faith. So knowing our assignment, what a force to be reckoned with would the bride be if we just got those things in the right order. So this is a significant battle strategy. And perhaps it's not really anything new that you've heard in terms of we know where to worship, we know where to love the Lord our God, we know where to be intimate, and all the things that that he has said. But when you hear that through the lens of what is needed right now in this nation, what is needed in this world, it it takes on new meaning. It was interesting. I know the ladies had to smile. I did not tell. We shared nothing. We, we totally covered the story of Gideon in the women's thing, and I didn't know he was going to share it. He, he didn't know he was going to share it, just so you know. He, he studies and talks to the Lord all week, and then the Lord releases the message that he's going to preach, usually about five minutes before. <laughs> and it's just, it's just birthed from the Holy Spirit. But, um, but the Lord had given me Gideon as well. And, um, and it's just such, a, such an amazing story, and each, each story is, is so deep. But, um, but we do have to recognize where the real battle is, and it is in the Spirit. And with that being said, I can't help but remind you that um, a, a fervent prayer life is critical, both on a personal level with the Lord alone and then engaging with one another. And God did something very unique in Ignition that I remember feeling like, what? This is hard or this is unusual. And now I look back and what he's done in my mind and how he's transformed me it's actually very normal, and we need more of it, and that is the prayer call. We do a prayer call seven days a week, twice a day, Ignition, for those that may not know that. We do a 12 noon, connecting with our Nigerian people, and then we do an 8.30 at night, seven days a week, every single day, every single, uh, twice a day. And that, when the Lord first introduced the 8.30 call, I mean, 8.30 is like right in the middle of your evening. And I just remember thinking, that's hard. That's, it's just all the time. It's never ending. Then as he began to transform me and, and show me that, wow, the world is peripheral to my walk with the Lord. That's, that's the, the lesser. That's the, the sideline to my focus. I am to be single-eyed on Jesus. And then the peripheral is... The rest of my life. Because if, if that gets backwards, then I become entangled with the things of this life. And so I just want to encourage you again. Um, everybody's going to have, you know, something, a job, a commitment that will come at one of these prayer calls. But if, you, if you're regularly not on the prayer calls, you are missing out on a power force to change this very nation. And the Lord is allowing us, as he said in his message, to begin to feel it. He's like, all right, if, if, if you were satisfied and thinking that you actually know me because of your church in, you know, involvement or your commitments or your do-goodism in religion, I'm going to take it. I'm going to change it. I'm going to shift it. 
I'm going to make it a little bit more complex, a little bit, I'm going to allow it to be a little more oppressive because those that are in most churches still, if they're open, are still dealing with the oppression of the non-singing mandates, the six feet apart stuff and things that, that while they're touted to have some human wisdom, they're really designed to incite fear. And, and we've, got to, we've got to have discerning of spirits. We've got to know what spirits are at play. We need to know what's actually going on instead of just go, oh, well, that makes sense. Who, are you thinking with the mind of Christ or are you looking with human logic? Because there's a whole thing going on. And if it's of this world, who's in charge in the sense of who's been given the domain? God is in control, yes. But Satan's been allowed to be the ruler, the prince of the power of this air. So we've got to be discerning that we always have the mind of Christ. And he makes that available. And I love the strategy put forth this morning. While basic, it's also new and profound. And we've got to know that. So praise God. And he wants us. I really believe that even after all this time and all these reminders, he really wants in the battle that's to come, the public, greater public voice that we know is around the corner, um, whether it comes through controversy or not, a greater voice is coming. He wants us to always keep the main thing the main thing. Because that is how the broader, larger, even global battle and revival, okay, the billion soul harvest that so many hundreds of prophets have prophesied for so long, to sustain that and to not have it fade out. Because people love to go back and look at what started these amazing revivals. Well, the question, and we discussed it yesterday at the gifts meeting, why in the world did they fizzle out? What happened? What happened with these amazing revivals that burst forth? Why were they not sustained? And I really believe there are a the few questions, but the one that, that we talked about yesterday that the Lord laid on her heart is because understanding the battle aspect, the warfare aspect with the power of God is how the balance is. And, and that's why he's teaching us so much about warfare. That's why he has allowed a lot of different um, deliverance situations to come against us so that we understand what Ephesians 6 is really talking about and what Colossians 1 and 2 and 3, the, the understanding realms and the authorities and the levels of different kinds of warfare that come against us. God is, is bigger and greater than it all. But as Paul said, we're not to be ignorant of his devices. So he's been training us, and he wants us to have that and seeking him in purity, but then um, being wise in, in the power, really, of the gifts of the Spirit, which give us that discernment. So um, I, I know that, um, I know that you, you've heard these things in some ways before, but I just want you to, to encapsulate them and say, Lord, am I engaging with you? in each of these strategies, in each of these things that you put forth, because I really, um, I want to be battle ready. I want to be a vessel through which you can trust me to host the full measure of your presence when your spirit falls in this amazing beginning of this revival. I don't know about you, but that's what I want to be ready for. It's not so so much I want to be ready for, for Satan to hit me. I literally, when I think about a readiness, I want to be ready to meet Jesus. And while here on this earth, I want to be ready for his power to not crush me. Because i felt that before. When the presence of God has been on me and it's laid me down on the floor, trembling, and you are overcome with his holiness, this shaking, this, this awesome, it's given me a, a fraction of a glimpse of, of what the, 
the, uh, the angels and the 24 elders uh, laying their crowns at their feet and saying, holy, holy, holy is the Lord God Almighty. I remember I, I didn't even realize that I was just, as I was laid out, I just kept repeating the word holy, holy, holy. You know, see, when it's not manufactured, when it's actually real, when it's actually a, a, a visceral reaction and an outpouring reaction to the presence of God, you just repeat it and you repeat it because it's so awesome. That's what I want to be ready for. I don't want anything, any fear, any trepidation, any uh, lack of, of worship or too much self-focus to be a hindrance to his power moving through me. Because there is a world that is desperate for the Lord Jesus. And he's looking for somebody to step up. Somebody. And will it be you? I know I want it to be me. So praise God. Thank you for this great word today, Lord. Father, we praise you. We thank you, God, for your amazing word. We thank you that the word was with God and the word was God. Thank you that your word is your breath. And today was released to us from the Logos word, a rhema word, for us to digest for now, for this time, to apply. Because your word is is powerful and real and applicable, applicable in real time to our modern day lives. And I just praise you for that, God. I thank you, Holy Spirit, for what you've done to impress on my heart what this strategy means for just invigorating me. Even in my tired bodily state, God, you can just explode my spirit as it gets renewed day by day. Even though I may die in my flesh daily, my spirit is renewed day by day. God, because we know that the things of this life This human existence, our temporal, the things that we can see are temporal, but the things that we cannot see, we know are eternal. And so I thank you for that, God. Help us to see with your eyes. Help us to walk according to the mantra verse you gave, Ignition, Matthew 6.33, that as we seek you, your kingdom, your righteousness, first, then all the things we need, all of our assignments, our provision, our help, our strength, All that is needed, every bit of equipping needed, will be added to us. And I thank you for that. God, take this word. Let it just drive it, Holy Spirit, down deep into our soil of our hearts. That that it will just spring forth what needs to be sprung forth, God. You just constantly place that on my heart as I pray. And I just ask for that, God, because you're in charge of what, what comes. And let us not be entangled with weeds. God, pull them out. Oh, God, if you see a weed growing in our soil, pull it out. Let us not have an area that's not dealt with by you, God, as we desire purity. This battle requires holiness and purity. That is a huge threat to the enemy. Let him not be allowed to take us to court in the court of heaven for anything that we have done. Even though he comes unlawfully at times, let, him, let, it not, let us not suffer for doing wrong. But as we suffer for doing right, God, you will only reward us greater. So we praise you, we thank you, and we give you the glory and the honor and the praise. In the name of Jesus, amen.